Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Sunday night, and I'm going to try to do the first podcast of the week. Today's um, Bayel is being sponsored uh, by my very good friend and congregant, Mrs. S.D. Rosberg. This is for mom's birthday, 90. <laughs> As per Canadian or Canadian year was, they say. And uh, I said, tell me about your mom. You know, and she says, she's like Esther, she's tough. My mother's name is Miriam Baschaya Shandel. She grew up in East New York, Brooklyn, was a child of the Depression. Well, you were 90, that's going to be. Went to public school in Talmadura. That's what you had in those days, right? Um, she married my dad, moved to Long Island, founding member of the Young Israel Devotion Side in the late 50s. That was the period there. She's still a member of the Shul, and third or fourth generation Shul members stop at her house to check on her and make kiddies for her. Isn't that nice? I wish she did was more than that. That's, that's how you stayed. As they stay around. She's fiercely independent, outspoken, has no interest in going to live with any of her children. I'm shocked. If you knew Esty Rothbard, <laughs> what else would be? Right? Good for her. Good for her. Her three kids, ten grandchildren and all, look forward to many years. Biz hundred and swansig, as we say. And I'll tell you right now, uh, we wish her a very happy birthday. She'd be very proud of her kids, the ones I know, and the grandchildren especially. But I'm not going to wax on that, otherwise I'll sound like a Jewish mother. Um, so, Mazel Tov. Now, let me um, say, I wasn't sure what to talk about. I had nothing particular in the head. And I just opened up the, a kiss slave, and I see the, I saw the Rivid. Now, the famous uh, uh, opponent, shall we say, arguer with the Ramba. So we're going back to the 12th century. Ordinarily, I wouldn't touch somebody like him. But, you know, coincidences are what they are. It so happens that in the last couple of weeks, education to get into the rivet for some history presentation. I had to give it Hopkins at a conference we did the other day, and um, in a book that I uh, got per- written by Professor Roth about Provence, which is where the rivet is from, as I try to explain in a second. And I had to give a talk about it, and the rivet has something very interesting to say, in my opinion, about Thomas Kohanan. And uh, A led to B and B led to C. And I happened to pull out, since I knew, I don't remember anymore, that Chaim Salvation used to write profusely about the Ravid. I never really read it, just skimmed it. I pulled it out two, three weeks ago on Shabbos, and I read it, it was very interesting. And I spoke about it to some degree uh, two weeks ago, I guess, in Wesley Hills. And I may have occasion to speak about it again. So we're dealing with a major Rishon. How big is a question? And there's no way I can do justice to this subject. But even to scratch the surface of somebody who's really not well known, somebody like Derivit is, in my opinion, an interesting exercise. Although I wouldn't have said it before this whole project at Hopkins came around. Um, I wouldn't have done that. So what are we talking about? I'm talking about a famous scholar from the 1100s who lived all the way through the 1100s, from 1110 to 1198. That's the whole 1100, that's the whole 12th century. Now here's how I would frame it if I were giving a history lecture. <clears throat> Compare and contrast two very similar personalities. One guy, his reputation and fame took off, and the other one didn't, relatively speaking. And they were contemporaries. They both lived more or less in the same country, although not really. So... I'm giving you a history assignment to do. And that is compare and contrast derivatives with Rabbeinu Tom. <clears throat> now let me explain. Today you have a country called France. But back then, in the 12th century, there was a country called France which was only northern France. It did not include what we call today southern France. And um, southern France was really a separate country. The French conquered and absorbed it in the 1300s, 
And ever since then, I've been making a full-court press to try to uh, Frenchify it, gallicize it. And, of course, succeeded to a certain degree. But also, to a certain degree, not. Sorry, I had to answer somebody. Um, this is what we call Provence, Languedoc. These whole areas are not really French. I'll repeat, they were conquered and imperialized by the French, culturally especially, but they actually have their own language. The, the, the area is called Occitania, or when I was young, Aquitaine, like Queen Eleanor of Aquitaine. And it's a separate language, like the Basques and all this, the Catalans. This is something that's just out of our area of knowledge, unless we live in that part of Europe. And so in other words, in that part of France, they speak French, and they also speak the local lingo. The reason I'm making a big deal out of this is, in the Middle Ages, it was almost a separate Medina. They really didn't have anything to do with France. And therefore, the Jews who lived in that area in Provence, in Aquitaine, Occitania, and Languedoc, and all these other places, were just as different from the, well, not just, but different from the French. Like, for example, the Italian Jews are different from the French. Or the Greek Jews are different from the Sephardim. In the Middle Ages, unlike today, you had all these little different types of minhagim, nuschos, things like this, flourishing for a while. Eventually, as the Middle Ages went by, one disappeared or the other, and all folded into either Ashkenaz or Svard, for the most part. I'm not familiar if there's any Provence left over anymore. Maybe a tiny, tiny drop in some Svarm because of the Papal States and all this. But basically, this is an episode. It came and it went. The Rivid was there in the 12th century when that Judaism was cooking. And that continued into the 13th century. But at the beginning of the 14th century, the French took it over and kicked the Jews out. And then that whole culture sort of collapsed. And I'm talking about Jewish culture and Torah culture. And the Rivid, our hero, Avram Medovic, is the greatest of the Provençal tradition. I think that's Pashat. The most outstanding Risho. Now, um, I don't know if that means anything, but I can only say it over the way I can say it. What I'm saying is correct. Um, so we're dealing with an interesting phenomenon. It's the 1100s. A lot of stuff... With, I'm going to talk about Torah literature for a second. A lot of stuff was happening of exciting nature in the history of rabbinic or Torah literature in the 1100s, the 12th century. Rashi died in 1106. Little by little, his writings were circulating slowly but surely all over the place. That could not help but affect how people learn. Imagine trying to learn more without Rashi, and then all of a sudden you get your hands on Rashi. Okay? So I'm trying to put you back in 12th century... I'll say something stupid, but you'll know what I mean when I say it. It's like before art scroll and after art scroll. Right? There's a huge difference in our time. For a Dafiomi guy, whoever, to, when he tries to learn before art scroll, after art scroll. Now, of course, the good Talmudic don't need it. But there's a belt of people, whether they admit it or not, that need it and use it a lot. So that's what happened in the 12th century with Rashi. I'm not done. Then... After Rashi came to Balitosis, in France, not in Provence. You know what I'm saying? In northern France, which was the kingdom of France. Tosis is a French phenomenon and a little bit of Germany. It's not a Provencal thing. That was another country, a different Medina, a different language. They didn't speak French. You see what I'm saying? They had their own rulers. They had much more strong Latin traditions. They didn't have the Celtic stuff and the German stuff. They had in the French makeup. Who would you go back to the Franks? People look different. It's, it's, it's just, it was a separate zach. Now, um, the Tosmus style was like Chaim Brisker in the 19th century. It was new. It was it blew people away. It had some resistance. But it was made it made a big mark. And so, if you live in the 12th century, stuff was happening. And also in Provence. Okay? Um... Well, let me let me hold my tongue for a second. Another big thing that's happening in the 12th century will be the Rambam, that phenomenon known Moses Maimonides, because 
he, you know, grows up in the middle of the 1100s. He runs away from Spain. Spain is a big Mokham Torah, went down to tubes when the Arabs, the Almohads prohibited Judaism. So again, it's not the same thing exactly. There's something like saying Eastern Europe used to be a big Mokham Torah, and then it ain't. Okay? Used to be Lithuania, Poland, such places, big yeshivas and whatever, and then not, thanks to Hitler. You see? So the Rambam ran away to Egypt, as we know, and produced his stuff. And that was epic-making, revolutionary, in terms of Torah literature, by, you know, summarizing everything in the Mishnah Torah and so forth. I think you understand that. So the 1100 is a very interesting time. The other counterpart to this would be what's going on in Provence. Now, they had very small communities, so did France, but the communities in Provence, this is like French Riviera, Marseille, Narbonne, Carcassonne, either you know what I'm talking about or you don't. If you get a look, get a map, look at southern France on the Mediterranean coast, and you look at the towns, that's where Jews live, Montpellier, Nimes, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, Arles, and so Perpignan, and so forth. Now, uh, these had small communities. The economy was not so bad. The small communities, therefore, were engaged in business. You could get along with the rulers at that time. If you know what you're doing, you can make money. And people tried to be classy and not only just make money, but also have intellectualism. What's interesting is the intellectualism in Provence was Torah motto. Okay? And that means, of course, real in the best sense of the word, serious engagement with Torah, including, you know, being iron deeply in Shas and Rishonim up to that time, like the Riff. But also Mana. Mana can mean math and science. It can mean philosophy. It can mean religious philosophy. Which is why there was a Chachmi Lunyel, which was one of the important senators of uh, Provence, that become big fans of the Rambam, have a correspondence with him back and forth, and so on and so forth. You know, we heard about you. They're the ones who asked them to send a copy to Marnavukum so they could translate into Hebrew. They paid Ibn Tibbon to do translations of all the, you know, uh, classics of medieval Jewish philosophy that have been written in Judeo-Arabic, like Sajidon, like the Kuzri, like the Chobos, all those things like that. So it's an interesting thing like that. Our hero was born in Provence, I think in Nimes, and not that it matters to you. You don't even know where it is. If you look at a map, you'll see it. And he learned by this rabbi and that rabbi, you've never heard of them. Unless you're an expert in Provençal, we showed him, you get the art school book, you know, you can do it, but it wouldn't mean anything if I told you they are. But just take it from me that his rebellion were people, by and large, who were exemplars of Torah Mata. They were Rishonim. We have Sfarim from there. But they're also interested in science, and secular stuff such as it was known in the 12th century. Not derived, not Avram ben David. For some reason, that's not who he was. He was Torah only. It's very interesting because some of his rebellion were outstanding in the Torah model field. And he will be unusual among the scholars of Provence of having zero interest in the model field and only in the Torah field. If anything... Kabbalah would be the addition. Now you can have this sometimes. My point is, not everybody who's somebody's Talmud is a clone of the Rebbe. Um, matter of fact, we sometimes talk that way. Oh, I'm just giving over what I heard from my Rebbe and blah, blah, blah. But that's baloney. You can't help but put yourself in the mix. And you, it could be different. Just because Rabbi Herschel Shachter is a Talmud of Rabbi Salvechik, Talmud Muvuk, without question, doesn't mean he's interested in philosophy and Kant, right? He's interested in the Torah side. I'm just giving an example, but you have like that. So the rival was like that. And from a young age one, the guy lived to be 88, so it's a long life, uh, 
1110 below 98. He's interested in strictly Torah stuff and especially Gemara. He learned in yeshiva with um, the Balamor, was his uh, Chavrusa. Later on, they grew to be bitter enemies. So obviously, they saw along different lines. And I think, if I remember correctly, they were arguing and fighting already, you know, when they were in yeshiva. And they carried this on. The Balamor came from a very chash of a family. Torgdul Mokamechad from Spain. Our hero, I don't know the details, but he got rich. Um, it's very famous that the uh, Benjamin of Tudela, you know that is the famous traveler, Jewish Marco Polo, visits the town where the rivet ended up living in Puskir, uh, which is a small place in that area. And he said, oh, I saw the rivet. He's a millionaire. He has a big yeshiva. No tuition. He actually provides the, the students with food. Torgdul Mokamechad. How he got rich, I don't know. Nobody does. Maybe he married money, maybe he made money. Doesn't come across to me from his writings, be the guy who was a big businessman, but you never know. In this regard, he's the same thing as Rabbeinu Tom. I told you, it's very interesting that they're contemporaries. Rabbeinu Tom became a millionaire from money lending, as we would call today, successful banking, by the standards of the Middle Ages. Maybe that's what Rabbeinu did also. Maybe he did something else. We know very little about him in terms of externals. The uh, Sheva Yehuda, which was written 200 years later, 300 years later, that is all, the, it's like an encyclopedia of pogroms, written by Shlomo ben after 1492. But it's not only about Spain. He's, he loves to write about every Xerim pogrom that hit anywhere. It's very famous at the end. He gives you very brief things. And this year this happened, and that year that happened, in 1172. When I hear it would have been 62, uh, Mishnas, Kuflamid Beis, Tafas Hatzor Altseid, as Rabbi Avram and David. That some guy, so rare, bad guy, named Altseid, whatever that means, in prison, derived it. They say, I never knew where they got it from, but I'm assuming they found records that the prince who ruled the area, Count Roger II, a famous dude, um, you never heard of the Albigenses. Let's put it this way. Uh, some of the rulers in that area, it's very interesting, favored the Jews. Nobody knows exactly why. One good guess is that there was a lot of skepticism about the Catholic religion in that part of, of France. I shouldn't use that word. In Provence, in the 11 and 1200s, in the 1200s it exploded a giant war broke out and millions of people were killed by the Catholic Church and vice versa. Huge wars called Albigensian wars are the Cathars. And the rulers sometimes were favoring these people. As Ken Zine, it's not a, impossible that these rulers, like princes and dukes and and and, uh, and counts, this Count Roger of, of Carcassonne, um, were somehow skeptical about the Catholic doctrines, especially about the transubstantiations. There's people written books about this. Gavin Langbeard, the famous um, uh, non-Jewish expert on anti-Semitism, he wrote the book on the blood libel. He speculated very interestingly that the rise of Elila's dumb was due to the fact that people at a certain point in Middle Asia is going. started to say, is it really true that the uh, in the church when you have the Mass and you eat the wafer, and drink the wine that's really converted to body and blood of Jesus? Uh, really? And the whole, whole religion. Maybe the Jews had something to do with this. Maybe. Maybe the Jews were, were hanging around over here. There were people like the Rivet who were well-to-do. The rulers in Provence, this is not so well-known, actually appointed Jews to high positions in the government administration, which is shocking in Roman Catholic uh, Middle Ages. And maybe these guys, you know, made fun of the Catholic ceremony, something like that. And maybe one thing led to the other. Or maybe not. All we know is the rival was in jail for a while until the big ruler freed him. We don't know the details. But other than that, as far as I know, usually, and for a while, the rival couldn't live in his hometown. He had to live in another town. 
But since you don't know where these places are, Carcassonne, Narbonne, Nimes, Arles, you know, Luniel, there's no point in you know, just rattling off names. It's all in the same area of what we call today the Riviera, roughly. And 50 miles in. Languedoc and, 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 uh, and Provence. Okay. Now, here's the thing. Arrive it from early age on was a, a contrarian. He even wrote his first saver was the Schlagout, something his Rebbe wrote, Isser Masher. The Rebbe did not mind it, but I'm just saying that's just very interesting to have that temperament. And he ended his life slugging up the Rambam, we're trying to. And that he only wrote in his old age. But in between, if he's born in 1810, it's a figure by 1830s, he's in his 20s. Uh, he married a Chashev girl. He had, showed, he had son-in-law was Chashev. I believe the Meiri was a grandson. Uh, so he lived that kind of life. And he was able to bankroll a yeshiva. And he learned with the guys. But the thing about him is this. He wrote this and he wrote that. A lot of it was not preserved. And very little of his writings actually is preserved. He wrote all over Shas. Um, but he, I, I'm going to use a funny expression. He had the bad muzzle. It's not bad muzzle. I'm just using expression. He had the bad muzzle to be associated with the very last thing he did in his life. Which I don't think was the main thing of him at all. And that is to write his famous Asagas on the Rambam's Mishnah Torah. Right? Everybody knows. You have a Rambam. You have the Rambam inside always criticizing him. So, the Rambam wrote the Mishnah Torah ooh, in the 1170s, I think. Uh, or 60s. Uh, it didn't hit Provence till around the 1190s. It wasn't Hebrew, so anybody could read it. They couldn't read the Arab stuff. The Riva doesn't have any Asagas, for example, in the realm of Sefer HaMitzvahs. Because Sefer HaMitzvahs is written in Arabic. He doesn't have anything to say about the Murder of Ukum. That would have given him a heart attack. He was not that type of guy at all. But he could read the Mishnah Torah. And he obviously disapproved of this, that, and the other. And he wrote those in the, la in the last year of his life or so. When he was in his 80s. That took off, as we know, for some reason. And that became the signature. You tell anybody, oh, the rabbit, oh yeah, the rabbit, the goes on the Rambam, blah, blah, blah. And the whole literature, as we all know, has arisen to try to answer his kasha on the Rambam, or vice versa. Because the rabbit is always on the ball. Doesn't ask dumb things. His teachings were well known in Provence. He represents and was very proud of their local Menhagen. He strongly resented the fact that the two neighboring Jewries looked down on the Provencals and considered them to be superficial learners and therefore challenged the legitimacy of their Menhagen and then Hanhagas. When I say Menhagen and Hanhagas, I mean the following. All halacha, as you call it, isn't really halacha, it's Menhag. You know what I said? All halacha is actually minhag. What do I mean? We do not have in Judaism a law book. There's no such thing that Sanhedrin way back when got together and they showed a law book. Oh, you have a Gemara in its widest terms. In the Gemara, first of all, it's almost always possible to read it more than one way. Not always, but you know, usually. Like I always say, all right, some things is clear. You can't eat a ham sandwich, can't light a match on Saturday. Okay, fine. But there's a ton of things that you can, you know, not so clear. As a result, over the course of time, um, different practices arose. Those are all customs. There was never a law-giving body within Judaism after the dissolution of Sanhedrin about 1,700 years ago that could even pretend to, to legislate for Jews. This is a basic belief of Orthodox Judaism. There's no legislation after the Shas. Um, the Ramam writes about this in Hakam to the Mishnah Torah, for example. Everybody knows this. And the Shas itself 
is the opposite of clear. So what do I mean? What if you had an argument between a buyer and rob? What if you had an argument between Rabbi Kiva and Rabbi Tafran? All you're going to tell me is like this. We hold like Rabbi Kiva, and that's how we pass him. But we hold like Rabbi that's how we pass him. Who's we and Paskin? You're telling me the customer rose to follow this and this ruling. It could be due to various factors. They're all kind of technical, intellectual matters. For example, do you follow the main sugya, or do you follow the policy like Rabbeinu Tami tried to put all the sugyas together? Do you say that when the Gemara offers Shinuyi Dechiki, that's it's meant you know uh, forced answers to the questions better than the answer? Is that an indication that the answer is wrong or not? There are different opinions among the Rishonim who are grappling with this for hundreds of years in the Middle Ages. Just because the Rambam said, I'm going to tell you what the din is, and later on, Rabbi Yosef Karo said, I'm going to tell you what the din is, doesn't mean that that's the din. That's what they think. The most you can have in Judaism is, like I say, minhag, meaning, not minhag in the way we use it. You say, we go like this guy. I would say in general, in our days, in general, you say, we go like the Mishabur. Not exactly, but you know what I mean when I say that. Look like the Mr. Bird, if you're Ashkenaz. These days, if you're Sephard, I suppose, mainline Sephard, you say you go like uh, Vadi Yosef. Although not if you're this other type of Sephard. So what you go by is another word of saying the Minig has arisen to follow this and this uh, policy. Over the course of time, the Minig may become, uh, what's the right word, you know, hardened through centuries of practice and you say, oh, we're Ashkenazi Jews, we go like this. We're Sephardic Jews, we go like that's what we do. And this is double and triple the rise of the Hasidic movement. If you're Lubavitch, this is what we do. You see? But it's not like anybody ever had a law book in the, typical, in the actual sense of a law book with institutional authority behind it. We just have a scholarly literature in which various scholarly opinions rise and fall and there you have it. So, the Ravid lives in the 12th century. The Gemara is the opposite of clear. They only started during the lifetime of the Ravid. He's part of this. To try to make sense in print out of all the different sugyas and contradictory statements or seemingly contradictory statements, explicit as well as implicit, that is what Tosis is. And the Ravid does that too. The Rabbeinu Tom got lucky in the sense he himself was not much of a writer. But he had students, like the Re, Rizik of Dompierre. And he wrote stuff, which became the Tosvos, after it was reworked by the Rajbal and so forth. And as we know, fate so ordained that these things called Tosvos ended up on the same page of the Gemara, certainly by the time of the printing press um, before. And therefore, every guy in the world always encounters Ravenu Tom in a variety of situations. Whenever you're learning yeshiva, you go through shots. Because he's right there on the page. It's a tosis. You see what I'm saying? And this tremendously enhanced the authority of Ravenu Tom. And therefore his, his reputation took off. Now the Ravid did the same thing, but he didn't have students that copied his stuff out for him the way the other guy did, the Ravenu Tom. This is my interpretation. The rabbi himself wrote stuff, but very often it didn't survive. And if it didn't survive, it didn't get out there. This is the fate of a lot of things in the Middle Ages. And all the rabbi wrote all across Shas. Only parts of it survived. There's that famous, you know, the Pirush on Kinim, and he has that thing on the Sifra. You know, oddball things. It's not oddball, I shouldn't say that. But, you know, it's the opposite of comprehensive. Now, his grandson... I think he's the grandson. Miri, obviously, as is the case, is always reacting to this. Because he did the opposite. He said, doggone it, I'm going to cover the whole doggone thing from A to Z. Right? That's what Demiri is. But Demiri also had a weird uh, history because his stuff was unknown until the 20th century. It was in libraries. Christian libraries. A little bit was, you know, copied in Shita Mugubetsu, but mostly not. 
And so the rival has this strange, you know, uh, uh, fate. Uh, he had very strong feelings. That was his nature. And so when he got, and he really didn't like the Balamore, who was trying to explain, then the Balamore is criticizing the riff. The rival goes after him and always cusses him out. When I say cuss him out, it's actually true. Look at the Lashonas that the rival says on the Balamore. You know, with the Sheker and this, and that, and the other. And the Balamore sometimes answers back in the same way. So people felt very strongly over certain things. The Fumis out there are hurt by the strong language that the rival uses against the Rambam. But that ain't nothing compared to what he does with the Balamore. Um... So he had that personality, and he didn't uh, write something systematic, therefore of popular use, that would spread his fame everywhere. It's funny that way. So the Rambam, for example, by writing the Mishnah Torah itself, which is of extraordinary use, and is a Dabar Shabbat Nefesh, and it covers everything, made it by definition became indispensable. If you want to look up any part of the Torah, you're going to have to find what the Rambam has to say about it, whether you agree with it or not. The Ravid wrote, if you put together what he wrote here, what he wrote there, what he wrote there, what he wrote here, probably comes out to the same thing, but it's not systematic, it's not organized, it's not in regular Hebrew. He had that style. So this is what you call Yeshivish at its worst. The Rambam had the advantage of a very excellent secular education. He read all this Muslim stuff, Greek stuff, in which he saw how to compose vast uh, literary works, and he did it with Torah. The Ravid was very yeshivish, wasn't interested in anything gaish, and therefore, like very yeshivish guys, they were brilliant stuff, but not in this comprehensive way. Except, you know, once in a while, he concentrated on some subject, and then, of course, he had to home run that does become famous. Like, for example, at the end of his life, he complains that the Jews in Provence, how shall I put this, are not so moral lesson. <laughs> Can I put it that way? So he wrote to Bali Nefesh that they should know the laws of Nida and things like that. He says so. Okay? Um, so he's very interesting in terms of personality. Now, I'll tell you something. In the last 20, 30 years, 40 years, in the history profession, the Rivers had a very interesting um, fate. I would say in general, with the exception of a few big y- Yodim, the Rivers is somebody, he's just one another one of the Rishon. Of course he's very great, etc., just like the Yolar. The Rivers a biggie. But you wouldn't think of him like, you know, not the first name that would jump at you. You always think of him as a Barplukta and the Ramba, as a reactive. Uh... The two uh, major American historians of Aloha uh, uh, wrote about the rabbit and came to d- different observations. One was Professor Tversky at Harvard, right, who's married to the daughter of Rabbi I met him a few times. And he was Mr. Rambo. That's what he devoted his life to writing mainly about the Rambo and stuff like that. Oh, more than that. These endless books and articles in the Rambam. But I think his dissertation, his book published in 1962, way back when, when it was a passbreaker by the Jewish Publication Society, it usually didn't do firm things. He wrote about the Rabbi of the Puskers. Right? The very fact that he would write about a Rishon, other than Maimonides, a Rishon who wasn't politically correct the way the Rambam or people like that would be, because in those days, 100 years ago, 80 years ago, if you want to write about a rabbi, you had to find somebody who also knew math, who knew medicine, who knew science. We have such types. You know, Barbanel, somebody like that. And that would be impressive to the non from. But the Ravid is a from from. How does a from Jew or a secular Jew have any shaykhs to the Like, what is that? I think that's why Tversky wrote on it. I had the book for many years. I lent it to somebody, and now it's gone. It's not my son in law, but it's somebody. I can't remember who. Obviously a student. So it's in somebody's house where Stan stolen from. And but it's around, I'm sure. And he was basically making the argument something along the lines. The rabbi built himself up over many years. Then he then he reached his peak 
the distilled scholarship with his um, Hasagos on the Rambam, which made him famous. Now, Professor, uh, what's his name, Tversky's brother-in-law, his wife's brother, is Chaim Salzvechik, right? Chaim Salzvechik recently is republishing now his collected essays and things over the years. And uh, these are two brainiacs, you know. And Chaim Salzvechik wrote a famous thing, which I'll tell you the truth, I remember when it came out, I barely looked at it. But now, because I had to give a talk at Hopkins, I read it a couple weeks ago. It was very interesting because I was interested in the subject. And his basic point is, you know, the Rive is actually one of the three or four greatest Rishonim. Which is quite a statement, because you wouldn't ordinarily think that way. I'll say it again. He's one of the three or four greatest Rishonim in the last thousand years. He has like these big expressions. And he says that Tasogus is the least of it. And the reason he uh, has this opinion because he says like this. Go through the successors of the Ravid, the Rambab, the Rashba, the for the Ran, and so forth. You know, the people who are the meat and potatoes of the yeshivas. You don't notice it because your attention is not drawn to it when you learn yeshivish. But they are bringing down the Ravid right and left, and very often agreeing with him, or slugging him up, or something like that. They hold his opinions very often to be the answer to a kasha, or a new Mahalach or a Chiddush. He said like in the hundreds, maybe more. I don't have the article in front of me. Maybe he said thousands. But I know he said hundreds. In which case, these famous people, Rajba, Ramban, and so forth, were extremely influenced by the Ravid, by the Ravid, and his seminal influence on their thinking. And when you get to the end of their Chidushim themselves, very often it's a position adopted by the rivet or something like that. And therefore, in a way that doesn't apply to Rabbeinu Tom or anybody else, therefore this guy rivet is like really a heavy hitter and a seminal influence as far as the Shemekah in the Middle Ages, and you wouldn't ordinarily know it. You see? And what he wrote at the end of his life was just like paparosa chachma, so to speak. Little things. That the real rivet can be found in the works of the Rishonim who, who come after him. No, it's the great rabbis of the 13th century, which are the usual Rishonim that they learn in the yeshivas. Again, they're Aragonese. Uh, Rashba, Ramban, Rashba, Ritva, Ron, Rosh also comes to Spain. And he's like a huge influence, which is interesting uh, because you don't usually think it arrived that way. Now, my talk had to do with the fact that um, I was doing a book review of a certain kind. This Professor Roth, and he was talking about the Provencal Jews as a separate type of Judaism, which is true. Right? And they had their minhagim and hanhagahag, as I said before. And in all areas of, of, of halacha, you do this and this, our is to do that. Our is to do this. And it's grounded on their interpretation of the Gemara, even though it may not be identical with what the Tsarfatim say or the Sfaradim say. Tsarfas was a province over in the north, and Sfarad would be in the south. And sometimes it's, it's very bitter. So the Ravid is often staking out his own claim and, say, and defending uh, Stark, the Hanhagism and Hagim. Of Provence, when to be perfectly frank, the Spanish and the others hold their not so from. That's what it boils down to. They're not so from. Their scholarship is superficial. And later on, after death arrived, we get to the 1200s, the Provencal rabbis indeed um, had an had a inferiority complex. You understand? Vis a vis. Um, the Spanish and others. It's a very interesting thing. They allowed themselves to be very heavily influenced by outside forces. Reminds you very much of the Yekas. Up to the time of Hirsch and Hillesheim, the Yekas didn't ask anybody else what to do. They have their own way. After the death of Hirsch and Hildesheim, they're always asking shouts from Chaim Eiser and others in other places, trying to give validation. And they lost their 
and inferiority complex. This is very interesting. So this seems to have happened in um, Provence. But now when the rabbi was around, he said everybody else is wrong and we're right. And I'm going to show you we're right. And here's my argumentation from the Gemara for whatever it is. Now, what I was talking about was, I'm just giving you one very specific case, which is the opposite of clear, but it's very famous. And that has to do with the Tumas Kohanim. <coughs> and as I was reading up on this, I came across a very nice article, thanks to Ellie Fisher, told me about it, from Professor Emmanuel, who is the guy when we shown him in Hebrew University. And it was about the ethnic tension, I call it, between the Sephardim on the one hand, the Provencal on the others, Lagabi Kohanim at cemeteries. It's one of many cases. It's just, I'm not going to rattle all 10 cases to you. I'll say one. I'm a cat, so I'm, I'm a coin. So it was interesting to me. Those of you not Kohanim is probably boring. Um, derive it. Uh, well, let me put it this way. The Sephardim uh, claimed that it's in the Gemara, it's a, it's a, in other places also in this in this fra, in the uh, what do you call it, Masechus Smachos. That um, what do you do when a coin has, for example, the buried parent? What's he supposed to do? It's a mitzvah, I say Minatora, for a coin to become Tommy the buried parent or a close relative. Let's stick with the parent. I did. So, so I'm a coin, and my father died, which he did. I mean, I was young at the time, but I'm just saying theoretically. So it's a mitzvah in Minotaur that I should go bury him. Right? Even, I can't even go physically bury him. How can I go to the cemetery, though? I'm going to come across other graves. You know what I'm saying? What do you do about that? You can go for your father. Can't go for a stranger. You see, this is obviously a problem that's universal all the time. They're always kohanim, and they're always burying their parents. I mean, hope you bury your parents. You don't want the parents to bury you. It's in the normal way of life. Sooner or later, hopefully after 120, you know, the child buries the parent. That's what a parent wants, correct? God forbid a parent doesn't want to bury the child. They'll around. That's the way the world. So. How do you go about doing that? You can't go into the cemetery. So because of that, already the Spanish rabbis, you find it in the riff even, um, say that you have to set aside a separate area at the front of the cemetery where there aren't any other graves, and that's where you bury the coin. It's not only a question of coming to visit them, it's also a question of the actual funeral itself. You shouldn't walk over or walk near the other graves. Walking over is already a tomb of souls, the Risa. So that means whenever you had a cemetery, that's what, that's what the Shulchan says. In Provence, they didn't hold that way. By the way, I haven't discussed the issue like this. Um, he buries the father or the mother. Have you left yourself a way to walk out? You see what I'm saying? Without coming walking over any other grave. Maybe the whole place is full of other quantum, and you can't go near them either. Only for your parents. So I'm just saying, it's a real-life question. And, you know, the, the Rambam, they're different depends what you do. Because of this, in many places, they simply said the coin can't go in the cemetery. Walks up to the cemetery, and somebody else does the actual burial. Because of this issue. Um, Rabbeinu Tan figured out a way Based on the covered up priest, the coin can leave, of course, never come back. You know. So for example, buries the father in a place where it's surrounded by other graves. He can go and do that. He has the right, according to Bain Tom, that's French now, to leave, but then he can't go back. The Riven, who had a student who died, maybe it was his son in law, but it's a coin. He wrote stuff when he was showing me. When he died, the rivet said, this is what they write, that it's not a problem. You can go in the thing, because based on the Gemara, you can, um, in the Sech Smachos, it's complicated, I don't want to go into all details. But you can go in and bury him, and you can walk out, 
It's not a problem. You can do it. So that's an example of what I mean when I say the Provence soul had a more mekeldika attitude and a lot of very practical halachic shalas. Things that would consider totally ulcered. Those were, by them, based on this derivative we're talking about now, based on their you know, uh, knowledge of shalas, they were mater. We're not able to reform rabbi over here, but do on the basis of, of knowledge. The Spanish rabbis made great fun of the Provençal. And after the rabbi died, they said nobody should do this. And the rabbis in Montpellier and Provence had to write back and said, no, that's our minute. And so it's going to in a minute. And we're not going to change it. And the rabbi knew what he's talking about. And in various places, I don't want to get too detailed, the rabbi returned to this theme, including his hasagas on the... Uh, on the riff, I think I read it here a couple weeks ago. If you get the nice new Ozwa Hutter thing, they have the Ksav Shum, they call it over there. That's his commentary on the Baltimore and the riff. They're very short. And he, he says, you know, you can go to the cemetery and come out and all the rest of it. Now, it's clear to me, he called hell for this. And people say, oh, it's terrible. Thomas Cohen, the Raisa, Malchus, and so on and so forth. By the time the Ravid writes his commentary in the Rambam, his Asagas in the Rambam, he was late 80s. So he clearly had dealt with this issue more than once. And what's fascinating to me is he radicalized. He intensified. And by the time he comes, and Hilchus knows here, to his commentary in the Rambam, the Rambam is ma- making these uh, statements, the Ravid says, let me tell you something. Actually, any coin can go in any cemetery at any time once he's ever become tummy. And all Kohan have become tummy one time or another. Huh? Right? That's the language that arrived. And he says, whoever disagrees with me, all will have right. In other words, in his old age, he not only doubled down on this, but he radicalized. And he basically said, any coin can now go and um, go to medical school. You see? Because if you've ever become tummy, once, Kohana made him a fushi tumma. The Kohana are not commanded against adding tumma. You either are tummy or you're not. Though if you're mechul already, then it doesn't matter. You can you can be as tummy as you want. You can become a funeral director. You can run a funeral house, even though you're a coin. I don't know what he means when he says all Kohana today are tummy mace. I would say this much. It is difficult to live a life, never, ever, ever, you know, not come across a case where you might be involved to a soul. I'm talking about me, myself, and I. For example, have you ever gone to a hospital? Uh, I mean, I've had times in my life had to get operations. You see, you understand what I'm saying? And do you know for sure when you went to the hospital, it was this, that, and the other? You don't know. You hope. You follow rove, things like that. There are rules. But you don't know. I've had other... First of all, I actually went to my father's funeral, so that's done right there. But even others, you know, they were in some room. Nobody told them in another room was a dead body or a chalik, a piece of a dead body. If you know the Shalos and Shubas, especially in the early modern period, they always had these issues with row houses. And a coin died... In, I mean, somebody died in one of those houses. The way the tumma leaves... Don't forget the tumor leaving. The way the tumor spreads, all the, everybody knows how it automatically became tummy. This is a big problem for hundreds of years in the old ghettos, which usually were forced by the gun to be one big house. Let alone the fact that you couldn't leave the ghetto because that's self tumor lattes. Because that's where the, the Hebrew condition is going to take the body out. And so as soon as he's dead, that becomes tummy also. You see, it's complicated. So let's assume that's the driving minute. So as soon as the person comes to me for whatever reason, maybe he's a soldier in the army, you know, anything like that, once you're telling me, you're telling me. They don't have to worry about it anymore. Whoa. You know, so in other words, let's put it this way. The rival was so determined that he's right and the others are wrong and that their criticism of the Minhagi Provence are so outrageous, he took it to the next level. 
And he basically asserted the Shita. This is one of the Gedoli Rishon. I repeat, Gedoli Rishon. In which he said, I'm nuking all of you. All your books and writings and Shitas that Thomas Kalanim are not no gay as is that. Imagine a guy would say, I figured out a way that Hilchus Nida does not apply nowadays. Or Hilchus Kashras does not apply nowadays. It did once, but not nowadays. Whoa! Whoa! Um, that's who derived it. No, that's how Takiv he was. This is a, uh, <laughs> you would use to call it a cool shane at Sibuchol and Lambaba. I remember when I was very young, the first Shemir Shabbos Kilchus that came out. My father bought it. And then, a couple years later, it came out in a different format. I still have the original. And, Apparently, I was a little kid that got heavily criticized because it was too makele. And then we had to reissue it. And there was a famous book review that says it had, had coolest. I repeat, this is Rabbi Neuvers. We're not talking about a reform rabbi over here. This is it had coolest. <laughs> so, the Rabbi Shita is like, you know, it's a coolest. And there's a whole history. And I remember the note of Yehuda's time and all the others. They want to make the argument that the rival didn't mean it's okay. It just means you don't get Malchus, but it's really awesome. And I have to admit that there is an eerie like that. But that's not how it was taken, not by Rabbi Kiva and many others. And if you ever hear urban legends, urban rumors, guys who were Kohanan and end up going to medical school somehow, I don't know how they do it, but I'll bet you that somehow they're relying on the rival. You see? So that's just giving one example of a hundred. In which he stakes out an original position. Doesn't care what anybody else says. And he's doing so um, obviously on the basis of an analysis of Shas. Not Stamazai. He's doing so in defense and sometimes super defense of a tradition that was his and he held dear. And he held nobody had the right to criticize it because it was grounded in great Gadol. Great Gadol. Now, the irony is, he was the biggest of the Gadol. That's the general consensus. Um, it, it, only in more recent times that a lot of stuff started to be published. Uh, I know you had that rabbit on the Baba Kama from Professor Atlas and so forth. Uh, but it's like too late. When I say too late, the rabbit will never make the same splash like the Rambam and Rabbeinotan. Because fame can sometimes be part of your literary presentation. The form, the artistic form. The Rambam is a book, is a work of art. In its own way, in a different way, the Tosis are a work of art. They actually are. A certain type. They have to have the ability to appreciate the artistic side of it but that's true of the Mona Lisa as well. You know what I'm saying? You have to have the ability. Anybody who's somewhat knowledgeable in rabbinic literature will understand that Tosis is like kind of a work of art. And that put Rabbeinu Tom on the mat. Not the book he wrote, the, the Sefer Yashar. Nobody reads that. You know, not this and that and the other. So the Rivet didn't have this luck. He should have had a student like the Miri who would, you know, make him famous through the quoting them all the time. And that student would have to get published. He had somebody in the Meiri, but the Meiri itself had bad luck and wasn't discovered and published until the 20th century. So you can only say, it's like a certain hashkocha, you know what I'm saying? That, you know, this wasn't meant to be. Now, one of the sides arrived is the Kabbalistic side, which is very clear. And I used to think one way, and now I've changed my mind. The usual way of understanding the term Kabbalah in the classic sense, you mean the Spanish Kabbalah. Um, not the Kabbalah, not, not the mystical stuff you find in Tosis and Ashkenaz and Rokeach, but something, you know, uh, it has a, a, a certain tendency that culminates in the Zohar and the Arizal and so forth. And the way you do that 
is to say, we had to arrive it. This is how it goes. Where he got it from, I don't know. Because Kabbalah, you don't dream up on your own. His son, the rabbit's son, Rabbi Yitzhak Sagin, or Rabbi Yitzhak the Blind. Rabbi Yitzhak the Blind has these two disciples, Ezra and Ezreal. They go on, I guess you say, Kabbalah missionizing expeditions. Uh, in southern France, again, I use the word southern France, I shouldn't. You know, in, in Provence and in northern Spain. And one of the guys who goes to their Kabbalah is the Ramban. The Ramban gets into the Kabbalah in a big way. And after Ramban, they have the Maimonidean controversies and they publish the Zohar, and then the race is on. Uh, and usually the way they'll say that is that um, the Rivet has a few very uh, famous statements that seem to indicate that he's a couple. In one place he says that recently, Hechel Ruch HaKosh Lepama Basement of Shainam. The Ruach HaKodesh is telling us this shot. Or This is revealed Soda Shemli Rev. It sounds like it's Kabbalistic. It's a Navua. Which he's usually saying like this. The Rambam, it's in Hilchus, a base of Achir, I think. It's very famous. I'm sure you've heard of it. Many of you. About the Harabais and all that. And uh, the Rabbi says, this is how it goes. So the usual guy says, whoa, the Rambam's just coming rationally explaining it out of the Gemara. The rabbit's pulling in the void. You can't do that. No, that's usually the way they see it. But to tell you the truth, if you the more I've seen of the rabbit, I think it's just a literary way of talking. Because one of the things he, he mentioned in his books is that I'm a guy... Who's um who's put this put this together on his own? I forget the language. Lo hayli rabbi, lo chaver, lo this, lo the other. You know what I'm saying? Uh, this I have from Hashem, which I don't think he means nevuah. He says I did yigia. I I worked at it, and I came up you know with this in this shop. Uh, listen to this language. The rabid rice is, I guess. In his commentary on Adius, because he he always he's you know he likes to write on um, things that others don't do, and he says, "I'm writing this." And he was young, the commentary and the Gemara that didn't exist before it wasn't Rashi yet. He says, "Ain't in me becholela, lomi pirava, lomi pimura." I didn't learn this Gemara with any Rebbe, and have notes no nothing. Ki meezras hamalamilon das. I was helped by God. Right? Now, I'll tell you what that means. It means I worked real hard. I put in the Yagia. It wasn't easy. Stubbornness is like impossible to figure out. But Hashem helped me. That's not a claim of prophecy. That's a claim. I worked, I worked, I worked, and I daven, and I got it. And I'm a from guy. So I don't think, you know, my genius all put it together. There's a certain amount that I had to see out the Dishmaya. That doesn't mean you're Makobu or you're claiming the Vua or you're getting messages from upstairs. I remember myself, and I'm a nobody. Years ago, long ago, I was once working for the Arts World at that time. They gave me part of a, what do you call it? Zvachim. And I remember, this long ago, I couldn't figure hide or hair out of it. It drove me crazy, a certain thing. And I talked to people. I couldn't figure it out. It really bothered me. And I said, what's wrong with me? Am I a dumbbell? This is a true story. I'm not, you know, and I remember I was dominating. Give me a hand. Help me out over here. And one day it just came to me. So I'm not the rabbit. But I hear the vort where it says, you know, doesn't mean that he got a doo-doo, you know, a telegram or something like that, or a Gili Elio, means he worked it hard. Nevertheless, I think these expressions led to the idea that he was a Bakubal, didn't talk about it much because he's not supposed to, bequeathed it to his son, his son to the student, the student to the Ramban, and then the race was on. 
Um, so the image that arrived as a Makobal is like a very basic one. So you, he's the antithesis of the Rambam in many ways. The Rambam is into using Mado to understand the Torah. And the Ravid even says about himself, it's not my Teva. He uses that language. He says, I know the Rambam wrote about Hilchus Kedesh HaKodesh, but I have nothing to contribute on that subject. You know, um, I didn't get it from my Rebbe's, he said. And, you know, um, uh, it's not my Teva to get into that kind of stuff. I forget the language. It's Ain't episode TV or something. Which is very revealing, actually. Because, you know, that's who he was. So he seems to be super yeshivish and uh, super pietist. Um, I don't know, he was a rich guy, so it usually doesn't go together with being pietist. But it could be like a Rita. No, see, he was a rich guy and didn't spend the money. I know they always talk about the Ravid as an ascetic, right? person that lived a life of uh, eating little and all that sort of thing. And there's a very famous thing which I've always considered interesting. The Middle Ages, especially when he lived, was a time when he had to rise in Judaism of penance as opposed to repentance. Repentance is mental. But penance is you do something physical to the body. You whip yourself, you burn yourself, you jump in freezing water, all kind of stuff. Which, in, as you know, in Germany, was written up in the Rokeach and in the Sefer Chassidim cover yourself with honey, get stung by bees, all kind of nutty things. Um, the Ravid, the home is Litvish. This is like this. If you want to torture yourself, meaning as a penance, just uh, stop eating in the middle of the meal. Just <laughs> when you're hungry, you took the first bite out of steak, now you walk away. That's a torture of a certain kind. But it's not the type of torture like you burn yourself in a fire or freeze yourself in the ice. No, it doesn't hurt your body. Isn't that interesting? Or, if you want to do a penance, like in Chodesh just pick your hand up and don't put it down. Let's say, for example, for five minutes. <laughs> it's harder than you think. Pick your hand up and don't put it down. Once I told you you can't put it down, every second is torture. You get it? Try it. Just for the sake of it. Say, I'm not going to... Uh, picking up my hand, I'm not going to put it down for a minute, 60 seconds. You'll see, you start going crazy. And the idea was, there are little things out there you can use as a penance. And it, it's painful, but it's not dangerous. Which I thought was very interesting. It's painful, but it's, it's a mental pain. Because not putting your hand down doesn't hurt that much. But it freaks you out. And then your Makayim, whatever suffering you were supposed to have without doing something that, that a doctor would say would actually hurt your body. So he's very interesting in a hundred different ways. Um, after the death of the Ravid, you know, you start to see, as I said before, less impressive in Provence. There are what we call Gadoli Provence, and there are Rishonim in Provence. But I think the Ravid, without question, was head and shoulders above the rest of them. And they felt that way. And the ones we know from the 1200s, remember the beginning of 1300s is gone, are, you know, second rate compared to the Ravid. Uh, that's push it. Now, there's Mazel out there. Rebbeinu Tom is an Ashkenaz. What happened to Ashkenaz? The Jews were in France, they were eventually kicked out of France, they went to Germany, next door. The Jews are in Germany, they eventually they kicked out of Germany, they went to Poland, which was next door. In Poland, they stayed. And when I say Poland, I mean the old kingdom of Poland, I tell you over and over again, which was the whole Eastern Europe, much bigger than Poland today. And those Jews, the Ashkenaz, remain out of Yom Hazef. That's the yeshivas on the one hand, and the Hasidim on the other. That's the Ashkenaz. So, and they are literally the descendants of them. And they regard themselves that way. There are people, you know this, you know this, the people can trace themselves back to Rashi, Rabbeinu Thomas, stuff and so forth. Some of them might even be telling the truth. So the Ashkenaz tradition 
stayed strong because it was exiled, but it remained, it kept its integrity. The Ashkenaz tradition did not disintegrate with the removal of the Jews from the original Ashkenaz. Same thing with Sephard. Jews eventually, of course, were kicked out of Spain and had to relocate elsewhere. But they brought their traditions with them. They didn't disintegrate. The Sephard was re- able to relocate in the Islamic world. But there are other types of groups, like the Provence. When they were kicked out, they disintegrated. They were too small, they were too weak. They moved into other communities and blended in. Whatever the case is. So there never was a lobby that says, oh, we're the Provence Kehillah and we're stuck on our Minhagim. Uh, it didn't happen. And therefore went down the tubes. So all you have is the literary remains of the Provence Judaism. Of the literary remains, there's no question, at least my argument would be, that the outstanding of all them, you know, head and shoulders above the others, would be Rabbi Abraham and David Apostier, the Rabbi, which is a little bit tragic, because, you know, it, his whole world, had he seen it, would disintegrate, and everything would be based on his writings. We do have the writings, but they're like scattered. You know, if you want to look at Elchusnina, you do the Baal Nefesh. If you want to see the Shalas of Jibbis, you look at Tom Jane. If you're really, really, really interested in his attacks, vicious attacks on the Baal you look here. But it didn't come in some kind of, you know, thing that a person walks around and says, oh, I got a Chayyotam, I got a Mishnah I got a Ravid. No, it doesn't work like that. So fame is a funny thing. And the example of the Ravid, I would argue... Is a test case to examine what are the constructed and constituent elements of fame in, in, in the culture of the Torah literature. Anyway, that's what I want to say. Once again, we want to wish happy birthday to Esti's mom and uh, thank for the uh, sponsorship. Of that, I wish you a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.